15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. And thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 238. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley, and with me as always is our expert uh, astronomer, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, in fact, because he's got a large brain with a lot of information in it to share with us today, unlike every other episode. Hello, Fred. (laughs) Hi, Andrew. 238 is a good number. It's uh, approximately my age. (laughs) (laughs) In dog years. <laughs> dog, dog years, that's right. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. They're all good. Uh, that's good. Uh, I hope you're well. Everything good? Yeah, all, all well, thank you. Still alive. That's Pleased to thing. hear it. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's, uh, uh, today that's we're a... going to be talking... Sorry. It's all right. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's a, a joke that nobody will understand if they're not seeing this on the YouTube. But uh, as I look at your image on the screen and mine... Uh, our res- respective ceiling fans are both at exactly the same angle. <laughs> they are too, aren't they? <laughs> Who's, who says this is not a bond made in heaven when, when your ceiling is. fans are at the same angle? <laughs> anyway, anybody who's not uh, seen this on the screen, yeah, just just ignore that. Sorry about that. So bonus, bonus material for YouTube viewers. That's what that is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, down to business. Yeah. Today, uh, we will be probing the Martian atmosphere uh, to, you know, at a time when it was warm and wet, which is impossible, but possible, apparently. We'll be talking about that. Uh, we're also we're going to focus on Mars today because um, they, they want to get there faster. It's a bit of a slow trip. It's uh, kind of like, um, I don't know, driving a houseboat up the, up the Murray River at the moment to, to get to, to Mars. But they want to get there faster and nuclear power could be the answer. Uh, and speaking of answers, we're going to uh, get questions from Aaron in Nebraska and Pete in Sheffield today. Uh, before we get on to our topics, Fred, what sort of prompted you to want to talk about Mars so much in this episode? <laughs> well, we look, Mars is going to be the big news this month, February 2021, with three spacecraft arriving there around about the middle of the month. If I remember rightly, it's the 18th that is the scheduled date for Perseverance's um, seven minutes of hell as it goes re-enters the or enters the Martian atmosphere uh, and makes its soft landing, we hope. Um, and I think the Chinese spacecraft uh, Tianwen One is due about the same time. And hope the uh, um, the UAE mission uh, will go into orbit. I think around Mars about the middle of the month too. So you and I will have plenty to talk about. But I thought we might just set the scene with the Red Planet, yes. which is the focus of this week's. This week's recording. <clears throat> and, of course, Mars is a cold, dank, dry, desolate place, effectively. Uh, and and, uh, and we, we're, we're certainly unlocking a lot of its secrets, but it never used to be that way. What was Mars like before its atmosphere was kind of, you know, unable to hold its, hold its integrity? I think I think that would be the best way to describe it. Yeah, the the common, I mean, the most um, highly uh, supported view is that there was a time in Mars's distant past, probably 3.8 to 4 billion years ago, when its atmosphere 
was essentially warm and wet, very like the Earth's atmosphere, with an average temperature of about 15 degrees Celsius over the whole planet, uh, with plenty of moisture in the air and on the ground, because um, the overwhelming evidence is that Mars had river flows, it had lakes, it had seas probably. The northern hemisphere is very flat and very smooth, uh, which suggests that there was a large body of water there uh, sometime in the past. Um, the, the, the only thing that's changed that view in recent months, and you and I have spoken about this, is the idea that maybe Mars, some of these water features could have been formed underneath huge glaciers uh, so that you've got this, you know, um, sort of almost like um, Snowball Mars, uh, but with the river rivers uh, made of meltwater effectively flowing underneath these uh, glacial sheets. So uh, that's, that's a slightly new idea. It's got some support. But I think the overwhelming view is still that at some time, uh, even if it might have been only for brief periods, Mars had a warm and wet climate. The trouble is, how do you probe back into Mars's climate? And that's where Good the story question. begins. <laughs> because there and is have a... Have they been able to do so or are they looking at ways of doing so? Yeah, it's, it's, a future, it's a future possibility, but one that's really intriguing and with good reason to believe that this will be um, a very successful uh, venture when it finally gets going. So um, we know from a spacecraft that's already in orbit around Mars, it's called MARVIN or MAVEN. Somewhere I've got it, the acronym, which is Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. There you are. You've got to stick the N on the end from evolution. But Mars atmosphere and volatile evolution, what it means is it's sensing the upper atmosphere of Mars. Um, it's been there for six years, actually, collecting data. Uh, but one of the things that MAVEN has uncovered is that there is a, a, a flow of actually charged particles uh, from, in, in other words, um, uh, what we call ions in science, I-O-N-S, uh, which are uh, particles that have lost some of their electrons. And these uh, particles of oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, argon, um, these have been coming off the surface of Mars for billions of years, and MAVEN has detected them. Uh, I've seen results from, from those detections, which are really interesting. Um, yeah. But uh, what has... I guess what's new, uh, and this is the, the, the work that we're talking about today, it's, um, it's actually come from uh, University of California, Berkeley and other institutions. Uh, what's new is the recognition that those ions, those charged particles, have found their way not just into space, but also onto the surface of Mars's largest moon, or larger moon, there are only two, uh, which is Phobos. Uh, Phobos, an object... Oh. 30, 40 kilometres across. Really interesting in its own right because it's got a very low density. It's probably um, something a bit like pumice in its in its makeup. And um, space scientists are not that sure where it came from and how it got to be like it is. But uh, the bottom line is that Phobos is in the flow of these of these ions, and they will essentially deposit on the surface of Phobos, which is not subject to any other kind of uh, phenomena apart from radiation from the sun, which is well understood and you can deal with that. So the suggestion that has been made is that uh, if if a future spacecraft could go to um, Phobos and collect samples from its surface and then bring them back, they might 
tell us not only about the origin of Phobos, um, but uh, the, 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 the material that's come from Mars, particularly if, and this is the, the crux of the mission, uh, if you landed the spacecraft on the side of Phobos that always faces Mars, because Phobos is like the moon. It always has the same face. Tidally locked. Planet. It's tidally locked, exactly. Um, mm. In fact, it's, more, it's even more tidally locked than the moon because Phobos is actually 60 times closer to Mars than the moon is to the Earth. It's very, very close. It, it actually whizzes round. Um, one of the curious things about Phobos is its orbital period is so short, and I can't remember, it's a matter of hours, uh, but it's so short that Phobos uh, rises in the west and sets in the east, which must be quite entertaining to watch. Uh, most yeah. other things do things the other way around. Anyway, if, if you send a space probe uh, to land on the Mars-facing side of Phobos and bring back samples, it is just possible that what you might get is a, 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 you know, a, a timeline history of the atmosphere of Mars, which might tell us what the atmosphere was like in these uh, in these uh, ages ago, these times, three three point eight or four billion years ago, when Mars is thought to have been uh, warm and wet. Now, the, the the good news to this story is that there is already a spacecraft planned to do that. Uh, ah, which I was going is, to ask you. Yeah. Uh, J uh, JAXA, the Japan, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, uh, they have something called MMX. MMX is an, a kind of acronym for Martian Moons Exploration, and it's a probe that's going to Phobos, and the intention is that it will collect samples from its surface and bring them back to Earth. The Japanese are very good at that. They've done it twice with uh, with asteroid samples. We've we've seen the, uh, the the most recent one landing in Australia at the end of 2020 um, mm. from the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. So so it's uh, it's a, a mission with a high chance of success. Uh, and would be very, very interesting. It would be brilliant if we could just sort of open a book, an archive of the past atmosphere of Mars that says, yes, uh, back in 3.8 billion years before the common era, um, Mars had this, you know, this climate, this particular um, level of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's basically what you're looking for, because that would be what kept uh, Mars warm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic, um, yeah, it's a fantastic possibility. And um, hope you and I'll talk about it in 2024. Oh, I hope so too. <laughs> I, I, I I suppose what um, mystifies me to a certain degree is how it was that Mars was able to maintain for some period of time a wet, warm environment, yeah. uh, and then it couldn't. I mean, what changed, or was it just, you know, it was always destined to fail? It, it, it was, because it's, it's too small to hold on to uh, a, a thick atmosphere. So, so the... the um, and there's actually another aspect to it as well, and that's that it doesn't have a magnetic field. But these these are the two factors. They come about because Mars uh, is small. It's smaller than the Earth by a factor of two, so its diameter is half the diameter of the Earth. Um, that means its core would have cooled much more rapidly than the Earth's core has done. Uh, that mm -hmm. means that there would be no chance of supporting plate tectonics, uh, which is one of the crucial things that stabilises our atmosphere, in fact, and it would have stabilised Mars's atmosphere. Plate tectonics are driven by internal heat. Uh, there is some evidence uh, from 
sort of residual magnetic fields on Mars here and there that look as though they might have been formed around the boundaries of uh, of plates, of, of continental plates. Um, but they must have solidified, you know, a very, very long time ago because uh, we believe that Mars's crust is now sort of continuous like an orange, you know, an orange peel. And we believe it's been like that for a long time because that's the explanation as to how Mars's volcanoes grew so big. Uh, in particular, mm. Olympus Mons, the biggest volcano in the solar system. It's because there was no plate tectonics shuffling it around over the, the mantle hotspot that was driving it. Uh, you know, as the Hawaiian Islands have done, they've moved around above the hotspot. So you've got this chain of islands. They're still, Mauna Kea is still, you know, the biggest mountain in the world when you reckon it from the sea floor. Um, yes, exactly. But it's it's nothing like Olympus Mons, and Olympus Mons is thought to have got to that size because there is no plate tectonics. So plate tectonics is one of the things that stabilises the carbon in an atmosphere. And if you get rid of that, then you've got this uh, risk of losing the atmosphere to space, plus the fact that, as I said, Mars does not have a magnetic field, so it doesn't have a magnetosphere protecting it from the radiation of the sun. Uh, and that, too, is a driver for the evaporation of, a, of an atmosphere. So it probably lost its, its warm, wet atmosphere quite early on in the piece. Uh, but uh, the trick is to go to Mars with MMX and find out. Maybe we will. Yeah, yeah. so it would have developed that warm, wet atmosphere while it had a, um, uh, you know, continental... Uh, tectonics and a warm interior, but as that cooled off and everything sort of set in stone, literally, literally, uh, it was doomed. Yeah. It's it doomed, was doomed. That's right. Yes. Mm. Very and sad. That's why, that, uh, you know, it, it, that's one reason why the idea of terraforming Mars is a no is a no star, non-starter because Mars yeah. is not big enough to hold on to an Earth-like atmosphere. Mm. Fair point. You'll just have to live in bubbles. Bubbles, yes. I suppose. <clears throat> Which I'm sure yes. we will. Uh, We're good at bubbles. Uh, yes, indeed. I've, <laughs> I've seen some marvellous theories, mainly in science fiction books, about how we could live on different planets in our solar system. Uh, bubbles is a very common one. Uh, one I read about, and uh, it was Kim Stanley Robinson um, uh, living on Mercury. They basically had, had the city built on a railway track, and the, the railway... Um, system worked by uh, the sun superheating the line and the expansion pushed the city just beyond the um, crest of the, the planet. So it was always in shadow on, on the and dots. not overheating. <laughs> and, and it just oh, went around it. and around like that. No, very clever, it. very clever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, disaster could easily happen if you, you know, came off the rail or something. Uh, but, yes, uh, fascinating. And, and yes, let's hope we do uh, get some answers and are able to talk about them uh, in a future episode of Space Nuts. And that's what you're watching and listening to right now, Space Nuts episode 238 with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. This episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by LastPass, simplifying your online life. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably find one of your biggest frustrations in life is remembering all your passwords, all those login details, usernames, passwords, important information that have built up over many, many years. And, and you might have hundreds of them. I know last time I counted, I had like 88 passwords for various things and it can get quite cumbersome. So what can you do about it? Well, 
I use LastPass. It's a password manager. It's a fabulous solution to this problem. And believe me, the relief is unbelievable, not to mention time saving. Uh, now you can sign up for LastPass and you'll be joining 25.6 million fellow users from around the world and 70,000 plus businesses. With those kinds of numbers, they've got to be doing something right. And they do. In my experience, it has simplified everything. I've got every username, every password from everything I do built into LastPass. And it's, it's integrated. Uh, I can use it on my desktop. I can use it on my laptop. I can use it on my phone. I can use it on my iPad. It's that simple. And it can even work in a way whereby you don't have to type in anything. You open LastPass, you type in what you're looking for, let's say it's your Gmail account or something, and it will bring it up and you just click on the link and it will open it for you. You don't have to do anything. It is really, really good. Now, uh, you can get the premium package for around $4.50 a month and there's a family and enterprise plan as well. And it works, as I said, across all devices. Uh, put your passwords in. You can go into autopilot. You can reduce the stress. It's really fabulous. Uh, I highly recommend it. And it will give you peace of mind. You will never have to sit there going, oh, no, I've forgotten my password. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. And this is the solution. It's really simple and highly secure. I mean, it is very safe. All you have to remember is a master password, one password, so that you don't have to remember any of the others. So check it out. Go to spacenutspodcast.com slash lastpass and help support the show. Sign up and you can check it out for free at spacenutspodcast.com slash lastpass and just simplify your life. Link details are in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to Space Nuts. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Welcome back. This is the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here. Fred Watson there, I think. Indeed. Uh, and uh, if, if you want to support the Space Nuts podcast, there are several ways of doing that. Uh, one is to sign up as a patron. And as I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, we'd really like to make the entire podcast uh, ad-free uh, down the track, and that can only happen with the support of patrons. So if you would like to do that, uh, you can do so by going to our website, spacenutspodcast.com, click on the uh, little button at the top right called Support Space Nuts, and you've got options to join Patreon or Supercast or, or make one-off donations through PayPal. It's uh, completely optional, uh, but it is a way of, of uh, keeping the, the podcast alive, and we're ultimately aiming to get uh, a 1,000 patrons, if we can, and uh, make the, the thing self-funding through the listening audience, which I think would be wonderful. And thank you uh, to all of those people who have already signed up. It's, uh, it is, is a wonderful thing, and it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg, unless your arm is worth $3. That... You know, that could be a problem. But uh, yes, if you'd like to look into that, just go to our website and click on the Support Space Nuts uh, link and find out how to do it there. Now, Fred, um, still on the subject of Mars, we've dedicated a fair chunk of this episode to uh, my favourite rocky planet. And they, they now want to get to Mars faster. Now, it, it is depending on when you go and how you, you know, um, 
fuel it up. Uh, it's a long journey. It is a very, very long journey, sometimes longer than it, it should be, I suppose, but you've got to uh, allow for so many factors when you're travelling across the expanse of space or just going to the next-door neighbour's place, as is the case with Mars. But um, they, they're wanting to get there faster, which makes perfect sense, uh, and the answer might be nuclear rockets. Yeah, that's right. I like which, this idea, you know. I really do like this idea. Yeah. It's not a new one either. It goes back um, back to the 60s, the earliest days of, of rocket flight. Uh, people were talking about using um, nuclear, nuclear rockets to whiz around space. In fact, we were thinking of doing everything by nuclear power in those days. Um, but... Um, just talking about Mars, uh, the the standard journey time for Mars, as we've seen with the spacecraft that are currently on their way there, they were launched in July last year. Uh, they will mm. arrive in February this year, so that's a seven-month trip, and that's actually about as quickly as you can do it uh, with normal chemical rockets because what you're doing is you're looking for... Uh, the lowest energy transfer between the orbit of the Earth and the orbit of Mars, and that is something called a, called a, a Hohmann transfer orbit, um, H-O-H-M-A-N-N, if I remember rightly, is his name. I checked up the guy a while ago. He's an engineer, but he was, uh, I think, in the 50s proposed the the way to get from one um, uh, planet to another was to essentially put your spacecraft into an orbit around the sun, which is elliptical. It's um, uh, an, uh, you know a, basically a stretched orbit, not circular, but one that's quite um, elongated. Uh, and mm. you, you you put your your spacecraft into that orbit. It heads halfway around one orbit, and then you basically fire your braking rocket so that it goes into orbit around the the other body, which is Mars. And and that's that's the the thing that gives us the standard seven month or so uh, travel time, seven to eight months, sometimes nine months, depends on the exact yeah. orientation of Mars and the Earth. But the other point about that is you can only do it every two years, which is why we had this rush of spacecraft being launched last July. Because if you uh, if you miss your window. Uh, you send your rocket off in its transfer orbit, and when it gets to the orbit of Mars, Mars is already somewhere else. It's moved along. Uh, so the timing has got to be perfect, and that is why you've got this two-year window. It would be very good to be able to change all that, and that's why people are once again starting to look at uh, nuclear rockets. There have been many nuclear rockets tested, in fact. Never, I think, going into space, but certainly tested on the ground, uh, dating through the late 1960s. Plenty about this stuff on the web. Uh, but um, the, the, the program, kind of in the post-Apollo era, was shut down. In fact, in 1973, uh, in the United States, I know nuclear rocket technology has been tested in Russia, we know that, uh, but not in the United States. It was shut down in 1973 with the basically the dawn of the space shuttle program, uh, mm. when the the idea of going to Mars was shelved uh, because um, the US wanted to build a space station and wanted to have a reusable spacecraft, the, the space shuttle, which that then basically took over. Um, so the there are the well, let me just. Um, 
take a pause there. Uh, nuclear rocket research stopped in 1973, but nuclear research didn't. And, uh, yeah. and the, the, you know, we now know much more about nu- nuclear technology than we did back in the 1960s. Um, and in fact, there is uh, a difference in the kind of fuel that you might use. Um, it's uh, it was always highly enriched u- uranium uh, that was used uh, that was proposed back in the 60s, which is kind of the stuff that you make nuclear weapons out of. It's not very nice, uh, but there is something. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, this uh, there there is. Um, there is low enriched uranium, which might now open the way because the technology has moved on. Basically, what you're trying to do, just let me explain how a nuclear rocket works. Um, you get yes. your, your, your radioisotope. Aside from going kaboom. Yeah, kaboom. Yeah, it doesn't, shouldn't do that. It's gone wrong if it does that. Um, yeah. And you're, you're, in, you're in bad shape. Um, it's, it's basically a pellet of uranium. Uh, that is mm. that is uh, undergoing fission, which is the the process that that uh, breaks up the atoms and releases heat. Uh, and the amount of heat that is released is enormous. Um, and what you do is heat up a gas. It's usually hydrogen, uh, up to about two and a half thousand degrees Celsius. And then you blow that out through a through a venturi uh, at the back, uh, which gives it a very high velocity. And um, the the key point about that is you you end up with two to three times the efficiency, the propulsion efficiency of a, a chemical rocket, one that uses liquid fuels, the standard thing. So you've 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 got you've got this sudden increase in efficiency by a factor of two, and that means you know for the same size of of rocket, you, you get two or three times more power and more of the oomph. Um, so uh, the there is a proposal now. Uh, this is a it's actually mandated by the U.S. Congress, which approved 125 million dollars for this for this project on the 22nd of May two years ago, 2019, to look at the development of th- nuclear thermal uh, propulsion. And I'm not sure I, uh, the um, NASA. Is is the agency that's looking after this that the um, the, the approval um, and I'm quoting here calls upon NASA to develop a multi-year plan that enables a nuclear thermal propulsion propulsion, demonst- propulsion demonstration, including the timeline associated with the space demonstration and a description of future missions and propulsion and power systems enabled by this capability. It's a really broad remit. It's um, you know it's saying okay. <clears throat> we'll give you nuclear toys to play with. What can you do with them? So, yeah. it's uh, well, it's yeah, very interesting prospect. Yes, indeed. So, uh, okay, they're they're more powerful, therefore faster. So, how much quicker would the trip to Mars be with a nuclear powered rocket? Well, even just the standard thing that we've been talking about using um, nuclear fission, um, using uranium as a fuel, um, the, 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 the prospect would bring the trip, the transfer town t- time down to 100 days, which is kind of three months-ish. <clears throat> so yeah. you, 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 you're cutting it by more than a factor of two. Um, just because you can, you can actually boost the, the spacecraft uh, to... A higher velocity that puts it into a, a, a more tightly elongated orbit, uh, and you get there quicker. Um, mm. There, there is another advantage. That, I mean, actually, there are a number of advantages. One is that the the, the, the lower travel time 
means that you don't need, <clears throat> excuse me, anything like the same amount of, you know, supplies, the resources that the astronauts themselves use uh, during the flight. Um, and and paradoxically, even though you're, you're being driven by a nuclear rocket, you've got a lower radiation dose from the solar radiation on the astronauts as they fly to the moon. So it's it's kind of got you know, advantages on both sides. And a third one, which um, I think is in some ways, you know, um, it's a, the clincher is this. It means that you're not limited so strictly to this two-year window. Um, you could take yourself off to Mars uh, at, 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 uh, over a wider window of opportunity, if I can put it that way, because you've got the possibility of additional thrust that you could you could actually choose your time departure time probably not completely freely you probably still have windows but they would be much wider windows uh, than they are now um, you, you don't have to rely on the two planets being exactly aligned that's good news uh, and so are you confident that this will will happen I mean when when you use the word nuclear it sets off alarm bells. Uh, it does, for, yeah. For reasons of, you know, dating back to the Second World War, we nuclear explosions uh, and and the Cold War and all the nuclear warheads that were littered all over the countryside that, uh, you know, basically scared us out of our wits yeah. when I was a yeah. kid. Me too. Uh, so when you use the when you use the word, you you you, you automatically think of the the terrifying aspect of of nuclear yes. power. Uh, yeah. But I, I, essentially, it's it's actually very clean energy and it's very efficient energy. And uh, it, a lot of countries, unlike Australia, use nuclear energy to power the the homes and businesses of their of their people. Uh, so it stands to reason that uh, it's a it's a logical step to take in in launching rockets. Um, is it, it? I'm assuming it's a fairly safe way to go. Um, yes, it, it, well, it would it would not be done if it wasn't safe. And just to mm. you know reiterate what you've been saying, I mean, I think the main reason why nuclear got such a bad name is Three Mile Island and, and Chernobyl. Um, and those yes. those accidents were because the the world's still littered with nuclear weapons. It's crazy, but you know, um, oh, hopefully. There will be times when that tension is eliminated. Um, I can't wait for that. Um, the, but the, the, the nuclear power industry suffered enormous uh, consequences from those two big accidents. Uh, mm. But um, on the other hand, nuclear power is used uh, routinely in space travel because, you know, the, well, a Perseverance on its way to Mars at the moment has got a, um, a an RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator on board, which is basically a bucket of plutonium, uh, which decays and generates heat and hence generates power. So it's... I've got, it's I've got still... a bucket of plutonium right here, actually, yeah. It's a <laughs> special, specially ventilated uh, receptacle that I, that I keep it in. Yeah, don't... don't um, don't don't lick it or anything, um, Andrew. Just you know, don't taste it or anything like that, because that, no, that no. goes goes wrong. Does that? Mm. Um, but just just to wrap this up, though, um, people are also looking, of course, as the whole power industry is at nuclear fusion, which is the the process that powers the sun, and that is a much more efficient nuclear process than fission. 
than using uranium. Uh, and it's actually much safer as well. Uh, that's why, you know, there's all this research that's been going on again since the 1970s on how mm. you can build a nuclear fusion power plant. And um, I've visited um, uh, an engineer in France who works on ITER. ITER is the uh, is the European uh, nuclear fusion experiment. It's an enormous experiment. It's been going for years. Huge amounts of money have gone into it. And eventually it will sustain fusion energy. Um, uh, there's, I think there are experiments in China too of a similar kind, probably Russia as well. Um, but the point is that um, once you can uh, can master the the trick of of keeping a, a fusion reactor going uh, then you've got almost limitless power uh with with a huge amount you know a huge advantages in terms of power to weight which is one of the things that interests you as a as a space engineer you get enormous acceleration for the amount of mass that you're carrying so <clears throat> there is um, there is a group <clears throat> excuse me there's a, a research group in Princeton the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, they're working on a concept called the direct fusion drive, um, which is a, a, a fusion uh, reactor for space. It was de originally developed in the early 2000s. <coughs> Excuse me, uses a, a hot plasma of helium-3 and deuterium in this magnetic com container. And essentially, uh, you, get, uh, you get nuclear fusion from that, and that heats the propellant then to these very high temperatures and, um, yeah, sends it out. Uh, it's also got a magnetic component. This, this has linear, a linear magnet um, accelerator. Really interesting technology, which would be wonderful mm. if it came good, and then we would be zapping off to, what do they suggest? You could get to Mars, in a, sorry, to Saturn in two years. Um, yeah. as against the 10 years it takes now uh, and, and about um, Pluto in about four years so really quite extraordinary um, indeed yeah and looking to the future once, <laughs> yeah it's very exciting I'm sure they'll crack all these problems and once they've developed sublight engines we can get to Mars in an hour and then when we <laughs> uh, and then when we've uh, developed warp technology we'll just take a couple of minutes it will, yes. In fact, it could be instantaneous. Um, yes, but you never be. come back. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll watch this space uh, with interest because uh, it, it um, sounds like things are really ramping up in terms of the power needed to, uh, to get around. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. This is the Space Nuts podcast, episode 238, with Professor Fred Watson and myself, uh, Andrew Dunkley. Uh, and uh, I, I talked about our, um, our website earlier. Uh, I have not mentioned for some time the Space Nuts shop, which you will find on spacenutspodcast.com. If you click on the tab that uh, says shop, uh, you can go in there and if you click on catalogue, you can see everything. We've got bubble free stickers. We've got dad hats. I'm still trying to define a dad hat, but I think it's just a cap with a, a logo on it. Uh, and there's embroidered T-shirts. There's embroidered uh, polo shirts for men and women. You've got the matte black magic cup. 
I don't. I think when you put a ball in it, it disappears. I don't know, but uh, there's also the, uh, the the stock standard coffee mug uh, and uh, all sorts of other things. The the hoodie, if you want to uh, go around, you know, at night scaring people, we've got a hoodie uh, and uh, the unisex t-shirts. They're all there in the Space Nuts shop, uh, which you'll find on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, check it out, uh, especially if you've got someone who's hard to buy for. This might just be up their alley, especially if they're uh, astronomy buffs. Uh, yeah, could be well worth it. And not overly expensive either. That's terrific. Now, uh, Fred, we have some questions to answer. And our first question today comes from Aaron, and he's in Nebraska in the United States. Good afternoon, Andrew and Professor Fred. My name's Aaron Inkstrom from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'm a longtime listener. I had a question about the speed of light. If the speed of light in a vacuum is considered to be the speed limit of the universe at approximately 300,000 meters per second, then does that mean when the universe was much smaller and compact that the speed of light or the speed limit of light was much slower? Given that a vacuum is space devoid of matter, does that also mean that the speed of light will increase as the universe expands? Thanks, and I look forward to your uh, your insightful answer. Um, yeah, the speed of light is is uh, something we've talked about before. I think we actually talked about it uh, in last week's episode to a certain degree. But yes, uh, the question is certainly one that uh, prompts um, a lot of interest from people from time to time. Um, yeah, if the speed of light in a vacuum is considered to be the speed limit of the universe at approximately 300,000 metres per second, um, does that mean when the universe was much smaller and compact, uh, the speed of light was slower, and as it expands, will it get faster? I think that's the gist of it. Uh, it is. <clears throat> and um, let's just set the record straight. The speed of light is 300,000 kilometres per second, not metres per Kilometres per second. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so it's uh, extremely fast, 300,000 kilometres per second. And th look, this is a great question, Andrew. Uh, I'm glad that Aaron's posted it because it, it raises uh, things that are absolutely fundamental in the world of cosmology and astrophysics. Um, and it goes back... Uh, to uh, the late 19th century, our understanding of all this, to um, two scientists, uh, and I can't remember their first names, but they were called uh, Mickelson and Morley. Um, they're probably both Williams or something like that. It's a very common name at that time. In the 1880s, they performed an experiment uh, that essentially demonstrated that the speed that light is not kind of traveling through anything in the same in in the same way that um, that uh, sound travels with sound it's being um, it's being carried by a medium uh, which is the atmosphere in in normal use uh, in, in space um, there there was this theory that space was filled with something called the ether uh, and that mm. the ether was the medium within which light traveled and if that's the case then you should be able to detect uh, the ether by looking at the way the speed of light varies depending on which way the Earth is facing. So as the Earth goes around the Sun in its orbit, on one side of the orbit it's it's 
uh, going at 30 kilometres per second in one direction. On the other side of the orbit, it's going at 30 kilometres per second in exactly the opposite direction. And that is a big mm. enough difference, that 60 kilometres per second difference, that if it's impacting on the speed of light, it would be detectable. You de detect it by using what's called an interferometer, uh, a Michelson interferometer, in fact. So they, these two guys did this experiment. They repeated it about 30 times over... 20 years, I think, or something like that, and always got the same answer. The speed of light is invariant. Uh, doesn't matter which way the Earth's going, doesn't matter what's happening, the speed of light is always 300,000 kilometres per second. And that um, then was built in to Einstein's special theory of relativity in 1905 that says that if the speed of light is constant, then time and space must vary. Uh, and that was proved almost immediately. And we've seen the proof of it many, many times since, that space and time can warp, but the speed of light is absolutely uniform. It's always the same. Uh, and the same is true when you go to general relativity. The speed of light comes into all that stuff as well. So the, the foundation of physics is that uh, the, the, the speed of light is an invariant property. Um, that's not to say people don't look for changes in it, but that's the basis of our understanding. And everything um, that we see in the universe supports that view. So um, as the universe expands, the speed doesn't change, but what happens is that the waves of light that are traveling through space get stretched. So they turn, they get redder. So that's where the, the idea of redshifts come from. The expanding universe uh, basically draws out the, the, the light waves or the radio waves. It's, it's the same no matter what electromagnetic um, radiation you're looking at. The wavelength gets longer as the universe expands. And so, you know, you get effectively a redshift. So, uh, but the speed of light itself remains constant. Now, there is a very small body of opinion um, that uh, has, has questioned whether at very, very great distances, in other words, at long look-back times in the universe, the speed of light was the same as it is now. Um, and um, there's a group actually at the University of New South Wales led by... Um, um, oh, I forgot his first name, that's ridiculous. Anyway, John, John Webb, Professor John Webb, who is uh, he's a great guy, actually. Um, he's the sort of person, when, when we used to be able to travel around the world, um, you'd go and visit a, you know, an institution in Cambridge, UK, or, or um, in Ari Tucson, Arizona, or somewhere like that. And John was always there, um, which is why he was always called the World Wide Web. I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. Um, but, I think that's but right. John... John is um, uh, one of the few scientists who thinks he's seen evidence for something changing at these very great distances. He, what he does is he looks at the, the spectra of quasars, extremely distant quasars, uh, and, and looks for um, things like, um, uh, the, the, I think it's called a fine constant. The, it's, a, it's a, actually a constant of physics that you can try and detect 
in mm. uh, in the light of very dif- distant quasars. And um, he thinks he sees an effect that most people think it's below the level of statistical significance, and that's why uh, this is a slight set of lone voices coming out from from uh, people who, who are looking at this. But uh, he thinks he detects something that could either be Um, caused by a change in the charge on the electron, which is another fundamental constant, or a change in the speed of light. Um, But I I have to say, um, I I think I'm correct in saying this anyway, Uh, it's a long time since I've connected with uh, these people, but uh, the the mainstream view is still that the speed of light is invariant, that it was the same at the Big Bang as it is now and has never changed. but, you know, people still look for changes. And the reason for that uh, is because we believe that there is new physics that we don't know about that sort of perhaps lies on top of relativity. Um, things that maybe it would explain dark matter and dark energy. Mm-hmm. These are possibly new, what, what we would call new physics, physics that's not um, uh, um, dealt with by current quantum theory or relativity. Uh, So that's why people look for changes in the speed of light. But so far, I think it's true that it hasn't been detected. But a great question, uh, Aaron. Thank you very much for asking that one. Yes, indeed. So, Aaron, um, it's probably, or the popular opinion at the moment is it was probably 300,000 kilometres per second at the beginning, and it is now, and it will continue to be so until someone proves otherwise, and that's always the challenge in astronomy and space science and physics, uh, is to find a different answer. And they're certainly doing that in, uh, or trying to do that with um, the theory of relativity. Uh, so why not the, um, the theory of light as well? Uh, let's move on to our next question. This one comes from the United Kingdom, uh, Peter in Sheffield. Hello, Space Nuts. This is Pete Ellinger from Sheffield, England. I have a question about remote sensing from satellites. How do scientists know the mineral makeup of the crust of the Moon or Mars when no geologist has been roaming around for years with their little hammer? Thanks very much. Love the show. Take care. Bye. With their little llama, I like, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they probably oh, well, do take little yeah. llamas. <laughs> they would have had little llamas on the moon when, because uh, I think in the in uh, Apollo seventeen there was a geologist, wasn't there? Yes, that's one right. of the astronauts with, was a geologist with his hammer. Uh, and look, um, yes, um, be careful what you're saying, Andrew, because Pete, Pete speaks like I did when I. Yes, I know. I had I had a little armor when I were a kid and all. <laughs> um, it's uh, actually what's amusing is the um, the electronic means that Hugh uses to uh, to turn the audio into text <laughs> has made that yes. into a little Hummer uh, with a capital H um, because it obviously thinks it's a vehicle that drives over the surface of the moon or Mars. It still makes sense, but I know what Pete means. I know Pete means a little Hummer, and that's what I'd say as well. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question, and actually, it's got sort of it does have links with um, with uh, Aaron's question. Uh, couple of minutes ago because um, uh, I, I I thought so I, I kind of suspected we'd be going down that uh, particular uh, path about um, um, yeah, spectral analysis I suppose or spectrum analysis yep that's what it is exactly that spectrum analysis so um, with 
you know, it's it's such a rich field, this, and it's it's what allows astronomy and space science to work because you can detect things at great distances from from the makeup of stars themselves because uh, all the chemical elements in the atmosphere of a star put their fingerprint on the uh, on the light that we receive from the star and you can analyze that using a spectrograph a device that breaks the the light up into its uh, rainbow spectrum colors different wavelengths uh, uh, you know, show up individually. And so um, that's how we know unequivocally what stars and galaxies are made of. And the same works for for surfaces as well. Um, because there you're looking at reflected light. So you, you've got the light of the sun. And if you if you pass that through a spectro spectrometer or a spectrograph, that's the, you know, the first thing you see is the light of the sun, um, or the spectrum of the sun, sorry, the, the, the things we call absorption lines, which are the fingerprints of the, uh, of the elements in the sun's atmosphere. You, you know what that is because we've seen all that before. But then in addition to that, are features in the spectrum that comes from the surface that you're looking at because they don't reflect light equally. That's the bottom line. Um, mm. the, the, the features that you see, and they're often, I should say, in the infrared spectrum, uh, you know, where you're looking at um, longer than, redder than red light, uh, effectively heat radiation. Um, these features are often much broader than the, 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 the spectrum features that you get from uh, the elements in the atmosphere of a star, but they're still very well defined and very well understood. So what you do is you look at the, you know, you've got a lump of, um, I don't know, calcite or something in the in the laboratory. Uh, actually, calcite's a bad one because it's transparent. Let me think of something else. A lump of quartz, which is also slightly transparent, but don't worry. Um, and you, you, you shine light on it and you, you look for what the spectrum response is. And then if you see that same spectrum response in remote sense remote sensing of a surface whether it's on a on a satellite like phobos or uh, or the moon or on the surface of a planet uh, then you can tell it's the same thing and there's a little bit more to it than that as well um, there is uh, a different signature that comes from vegetation uh, and the chlorophyll in vegetation actually has a very strong spectral signature. So that's why, um, you know, you can look at the surface of the Earth and know that it's got living organisms on it uh, from specs mm. because because and you've got this strong I, um, spectral signature. I remember some years ago, we, you and I hosted a, a lecture once about um, perhaps using uh, this kind of technique to look at exoplanets in the search for living organisms. And um, that, that was something that was being pioneered and certainly could be a great tool into the future uh, when looking yeah. for, for plant life or, or, or some other kind of life. That, that's right. Um, th these are, I mean, this is still a very, very active field of research, um, looking for biomarkers. What, what mm. um, specific... Uh, feature in the spectrum, say of an exoplanet or its atmosphere, what specific feature would be an unequivocal demonstration of the existence of uh, biological processes? And it's actually not an easy thing to do. Uh, we thought we had it 
we thought we had it um, clinched about a decade ago um, with something called the vegetation red edge. And this is a spectrum feature uh, that comes from vegetation. It's called the red edge because it, it actually is a, is a, a drop in intensity uh, in the spectrum. And um, But the, the trouble is that feature is reproduced by other features that have got no biological origin at all. So it's not unique. It's um, kind of gone off the boil a bit as the vegetation red edge. Uh, it's still, it's still a, 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 you know, it is still produced by vegetation and it's something people look for when they're doing earth sensing uh, because it, you can tell from the shape of the red edge whether that vegetation is alive or dead, for example. Uh, but um, it's not, uh, it's not unique. There are other things that look a lot like it. Um, I might just side sidestep here because it is part of the same story, Andrew. Uh, you and I covered the news, I think, in September last year that phosphine had been detected um, in yes. the atmosphere of Venus. And phosphine is a potential yes. biomarker. Um, the mm. latest research on that, though, uh, is pouring a little bit of cold water on it because I read a paper yesterday that's suggesting that the phosphine feature wasn't phosphine. It was actually a sulfur dioxide feature in the atmosphere of Venus uh, that was masquerading as a phosphine feature or being misinterpreted as. Uh, and so some of the excitement might have gone off that. We we probably await a, a slightly more conclusive um, version of that research. But you see how basically it, it, it shows you how vital it is to have biomarkers that are absolutely unequivocal if you're going to start talking about life beyond, uh, beyond the Earth. Um, and yes. phosphine's... Probably a biomarker on a rocky planet, but maybe that's not what was found. No, no. I think you and I said at the time it'll probably turn out to be something quite innocent and natural and definitely not yeah. Venusians. Um, so, Pete, it's, uh, it's yeah, the analysis by um, uh, of light that gives us the answers when we can't take our little amas to these places, uh, which but they will take their little amas there one day, I'm sure. Uh, hey. Although it does prompt one question in my mind. Uh, some time ago, or not, uh, it was fairly recent actually, we talked about the, the, the what life might be like on other planets with different kinds of stars and how that might affect um, you know the way things evolve. We, we, we're just talking about how um, you, know, you shine a light on a piece of quartz on Earth and then you look at the, the planets or moons or satellites beyond and the same thing appears, therefore it's quartz. But would that be augmented or uh, changed depending on the type of star that's shining on that um, that rocky planet, for example, uh, like a blue giant or, or a, um, a a red dwarf or something like that? Would would you have to allow for that, or or could you make a mistake by thinking, oh, it's all the same as it is here, but it's not? <laughs> No, no, absolutely. You, you know, that's the first thing you do is subtract the, the light of the, um, of the parent star from the spectrum, um, which is just standard, you know, standard procedure in this kind of analysis. So it's a good question, but it is it, because oh, it, yes, it, it certainly it certainly makes a difference. You know, um, if you've got the same material on a on a on a planet that's going around uh, a very hot star as as you've got on one going around a very cool star, a, a red dwarf, uh, they will look quite different. Uh, but you could compensate for that by, as I said, you subtract the light of the of the planet. It's a technique um, which I've used myself in this sort of work. 
Long time. There you go. All right. <laughs> uh, I knew Pete would probably have that as a follow-up question, so I saved there him saved yeah. him some work. And, mm. and while while we're on, Andrew, there's absolutely not wrong with little lammers. They're grand. Nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at all. In fact, uh, they had the Winter Olympics at Little Hammer. Sorry, that was yes, a terrible yes, dad joke. Uh, Horrible. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe it's time that we sh- we shut down for the week. <laughs> I, I think we should finish. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Aaron, for your questions. And don't forget, if you have uh, a question for us, go to our website, click on the AMA tab, and you can uh, record it. If you've got a, a, a device with a microphone, spacenutspodcast.com, of course, click on the AMA tab. Or if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, just use our email interface and send us all the information. Either way, don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. Uh, would be lovely to hear from you. Uh, and that does wrap it up. Fred, thank you for um, everything you do. We really, uh, we really love it and uh, yeah, very insightful as always. A great pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me, and we'll speak again soon. We will indeed. Uh, Professor Fred Watson here on Space Nuts, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, and Hugh in the studio, it's goodbye from us, and we'll see you on the next edition. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.